So we here at Evangelical Methodist Church, um, we try to anyway, we try to follow, um, not legalistically and not exclusively, but we generally follow uh, uh, the church calendar that begins in Advent with the uh, preparation for Christmas. So we're, we're looking at those themes in the Bible that talk about the coming Messiah who would be born to a, a virgin in Bethlehem. Uh, and then we, we have this season, we're getting ready to start a Wednesday of Lent, which prepares us for Easter, which uh, celebrates the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and then uh, after that, we have a, a season of, uh, where we acknowledge the ascension of Jesus from, from earth to heaven. And, and then Pentecost, where the, we celebrate the giving of the Holy Spirit. And, and this church calendar concludes um, the last week of the year prior to the start of the next Advent with Christ the King Sunday. Now, once again, we don't, we're not glued to that as if those are the only things we ever talk about, but the church calendar gives us a chance to rehearse throughout every year the, the, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ministry of Jesus Christ and the spirit that he has sent us to live as his disciples in this world. And so throughout the seasons, we're, we're, we're following certain themes in the scriptures, and we find ourselves right now with uh, the last opportunity to talk about the season of epiphany. If you've never heard of epiphany, um, it comes from a Greek word that means appearance or manifestation. It's this word that the Bible uses to talk about both the first and second comings of Christ. But specifically, as it pertains to the church calendar, epiphany uh, takes a, a few, a week, or a season of weeks, to look at uh, the time when those wise men from the east came and visited Joseph and Mary after the birth of Christ. And that's where we have been. For those of you who haven't been able to be with us, or perhaps you're a guest with us today, that's where we've been. We've been camping out here in Matthew chapter 2 for the last four weeks or so, and this is sort of the, the last message of this chapter, of this season, before we turn the corner to talk about uh, well, this, the season of, of Lent. And so, um, if you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. If you grabbed a guest Bible, and this, the, those are those Bibles um, located on the little tables back by the, the doors there. Those, by the way, are a gift to you if you uh, don't own a Bible, or perhaps you don't have one in the New Living Translation, which is the one we've chosen to preach from here on Sundays. Uh, you're welcome to take, take one of those Bibles and keep it for yourself, or take it to a friend and give it to a friend. We, we like to think that we're generous with our Bibles here at this church, and you are more than welcome to take one. But if you have one and you want to know which page you're on, we're on page 772 for one final time here after camping out here for the last month or so. So let's look there at the last few verses of this chapter, and we'll, we'll take a look at what uh, Matthew has to say for us here, and um, hear, the wor- hear from the word of the Lord in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judah was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, of the four Gospels, Matthew is the only Gospel writer who 
includes this story in his gospel, this story of, um, of Herod the Great and the, the wise men from the east, um, Herod's attempted uh, infanticide of all the, the young boys to and under in Bethlehem to try to get the baby Jesus, and then Joseph taking his family to escape the plot to go to Egypt, um, and then here in our passage to return. And it's interesting to me that something so significant from the earliest days of Jesus' life would be omitted from the other three Gospels. But we have to remember that each of the Gospel writers had their own unique perspectives. They had their own unique emphases, which determined what they included in their Gospels and what they left out. You can't turn to any one gospel and read everything that Jesus did in one place. In fact, John makes the point at the, in, at the end of both of the last two chapters of his gospel that there's no way anyone in all the world, in, if we had all the books in the world to record all the things that Jesus did, it, it still wouldn't be enough. He did so many things in his, in his brief time on this earth, and yet each of the gospel writers included, of all that stuff that Jesus did, what served their particular goal and objective in writing their particular Gospels. And so, Matthew gives us this story of how this son of David, who was born in Bethlehem in Judea, could come to be known as a Nazarene, which was in Galilee. This is what one commentator calls Matthew's geographic apologetic, that is, his explanation for how these things came about. If he was born here, but he would be called someone from, who comes from here, well, Matthew gives us his explanation of how that is the case. And Luke does something similar, but he does it in a different way. In Luke, if we were to begin reading there in chapter 1, you'd see in verse 26, we, we would come to find out that Joseph was a Nazarene already. This, is, this was where he was from, at least at the time uh, that we're talking about here. And, and it's not until chapter 2 that we learn why this Nazarene is in Bethlehem at all. Well, it's because a, a mandate came down from Rome that there would be a census. And so Joseph had to take his pregnant wife uh, all the way down to Bethlehem, which was his ancestral home. And, and, there is, is how, and that is how the baby Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, neither Mark nor John have anything really to say about it. Mark just simply says in chapter 1, verse 9, one day Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. There's no explanation of, of anything beyond that. There's no apologetic. He's not trying to explain anything. He's not trying to make an argument for anything. He just simply states it. Um, and that's sort of Mark's style. Mark is the, the, the brief one, the concise one. Mark is the one that you would invite your church to preach because he doesn't have as much to say as the other three have to say. John omits Nazareth entirely from the beginning of his gospel. Although he does have some colorful things to say about Nazareth later, which we will come back to momentarily. But back to Matthew for now. He, like Luke, feels compelled to explain the circumstances that resulted in Jesus having been born in one place, but known as having come from another. What Luke accomplishes with his explanation, that Joseph was a Nazarene, but because of a census had to go to Bethlehem, Matthew is accomplishing with his explanation that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but due to the circumstances with Herod, they had to flee to Egypt and then return from Egypt. And then in our passage here, not back to Bethlehem, they returned back to Nazareth. But why does it matter? Pastor Sean, why are we spending so much time talking about this topic? What, what is Matthew trying to tell us? Or perhaps more importantly, why does he account for these things in this way? Why is he unique from the other three? Well, to, to answer that question, it helps first to know 
Who is Matthew writing to? What, what is his primary audience? We know from uh, studying his, his, his letter internally, as well as what we know from history, that Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish population. He was writing to most likely believing Jews uh, in Christ, or perhaps Jews who are on the cusp of believing in Christ. And this is obvious from the large amount of Jewish material we find in his gospel, and from all the links that he's making explicitly to the Old Testament from the very first chapter onwards. And as Jewish readers, they would have been very familiar with the prophetic tradition from the Old Testament, that the Messiah, that is this coming anointed one of God, who would deliver God's people, who would establish a kingdom on earth, a, a kingdom after, after the, the kingdom of David, but, but in, a, in a greater way. This coming anointed one, this Messiah, would come from Bethlehem. There's a prophetic tradition that they would all have been familiar with and aware of. Well, at least the ones that cared. We know King Herod, he, he, from a few weeks ago, we know that he projected this idea that he was a, a, a believing Jew, but in fact, he had no idea where the Messiah was foretold to come from. He had to, be, he had to be told. But Matthew's readers didn't have to be told. They were reminded back in verse 6 of our chapter when Matthew quotes Micah 5.2. But as Jews, they would have been familiar with this prophetic tradition. But they would also have seen the deep symbolism in the things that Matthew has included in his account. They would have connected the dots, as it were, of Jesus and Herod's story to Moses and Pharaoh's story. This is where we were last week. So we talked about how these, these figures from the Old Testament were, can be seen as types of these figures now in the New Testament. That, that they would have read the story about Jesus and um, this attempt to take his life as a baby, and they would have instantly connected that to the story of Moses when he was born and Pharaoh's attempt to kill the babies, all the Hebrew babies that were born in Egypt. They would have connected the, the details of of Jesus escaping to Egypt with, with Moses' own escape from Egypt, and then his return from Egypt, and Moses' return to Egypt. They would, have, they would have made these connections. Remember, as we talk, biblical typology is not a, one of exact correspondence. It's not the exact same thing happening on some sort of unending cycle. It's, it's one of meaningful correspondence where you look at the stories of the Old Testament and the New, and you can see patterns in which God is at work, and we get vocabulary, and we get symbolism, and we get meaning from the Old Testament that helps us understand the things that God is doing in the New Testament. Indeed, in our own passage that we just read here this morning, you have, uh, in verse 20, language that is borrowed right from the book of Exodus. Look at verse 20, if you have your Bible still open. It's the, the angel tells Joseph, take the child and his mother, back to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. And that is almost verbatim of the message that the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 4.19, where he says, return to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you have died. It's the same, it's the same thing. And we are to make these connections. We are to see that, that Jesus fleeing to Egypt and Moses fleeing from Egypt and then Jesus' return from Egypt and Moses' return to Egypt as somehow connected. There's something in the meaning of what's happening here. That is to ca capture the imagination and the attention of the reader. And that would have been especially true for Matthew's original audience. They would have read this account and they would have come away with a clearer picture of who Jesus was and what he came to do a newer, greater deliverer than Moses. 
a newer, better son of God than the nation of Israel. And as such, he comes to offer a newer, greater deliverance and covenant and salvation. Knowing these things helps us to see why Matthew chose to take this approach in explaining the circumstances of young Jesus' life. The other gospel writers had their reasons for doing what they did. Now you and I have a clear sense of, of what Matthew was trying to do, of why he did what he did. But then we come to verse 23. <laughs> it all, it's all neat and tidy now, isn't it? We've made all the connections. We know all the background. We see how uh, the, the meaning and the significance and the symbolism, and, and we rejoice in it. And I, I heard tremendous feedback last week, folks who had never seen this type of interpretation before and seeing the connections that I was trying to help us all together see. And it's, it's wonderful until you come to the last verse in the chapter. And if we look closely enough, a whole new set of questions begin to appear. I don't know if you uh, have ever heard of the, the app you can get on your device called Endless Paper. Has anybody ever heard of Endless Paper? I doubted anyone would put their hand up, and that's okay. I'm actually pretty uh, new and unfamiliar to it myself, and I don't have it. I just know of it. And what Endless Paper allows um, graphic artists to do is create what is called um, pictures with infinite zoom. Okay, So you know, uh, I saw some cameras out a few minutes ago when the little preschoolers were up here, and you were taking pictures and videos. And you know when you take the picture on your smartphone, you can, you can pinch out to zoom in, right? Um, but there's limitations to how far you can zoom in because there's only so many pixels in the picture that you took. So you zoom in and the pixels get larger, larger, larger until you zoom in far enough and it's just, you know, big blocks of color, right? And of course you zoom, pinch to zoom back out to see it in its full uh, resolution. Well, endless paper allows you to create infinite zoom art. So say you have a, a picture of a bird flying through the air and you, you zoom in and you zoom in, and more and more detail appears, and you get to the eye, and you zoom in on the eye, and, and in the pupil, there's a reflection, and oh, and as you zoom into the reflection, it's a, it's a city. And as you zoom in, the, the buildings come into focus, and the detail, and you can zoom in and see the streets of the city, and, and oh, there's a window over there, and you zoom into the window, and next thing you know, you're, you're zooming into the room of that particular uh, um, skyscraper or whatever, and, and you can go, as, as long as the artist has created something, you can zoom basically forever. I find that fascinating. But to my point here, we need to do a little bit of zooming into verse 23. We need, there's more than meets the eye. There's, there's, there's something deeper in this verse that I will confess um, in my 43 years on this earth and all the many hours in, that I've put into studying God's word, both as a student in a college or seminary or as a pastor or just as a Christian, I have missed it every time until this week. Verse 23 has, has more than meets the eye. The family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, I know there's a spectrum represented here of, of, um, of Bible knowledge. I know there's, there's some here who aren't as familiar with the Bible. They're less acquainted with what, with what the Bible has to say. They're, it's unfamiliar to them. And there's others here who, who've been studying the Bible their entire lives. But I'm curious, uh, of the folks who are in here listening right now, 
um, without taking a peek at your little study notes at the bottom of the pages if you have a study Bible. It's no cheating. I'm wondering if anyone in here can tell me where in the Old Testament it says that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Don't blurt it out. This is more rhetorical. Um, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you know the answer. Now look, this is the ninth time in 25 verses where Matthew has made a, a, a connection between the Old Testament and the story of Jesus. Right? Five of the previous times, it's an explicit connection. He, he flat out tells us, this fulfills what the prophet said. And, and the other three times prior to now are, are connections that we are to make by means of inference or by means of typology. And in each of these cases, we're, we're either, even the, the Bible reader who's not as well acquainted with the scriptures can either quickly find the reference because the references are in, in the, the pages, or you just remember from, you know, from your childhood, perhaps. You were, you had a vacation Bible school, and you remember the story of Moses, and you would have read the story of Jesus, and you would have begin make, begun making some connections. You would have a sense of what's going on there. It, it, but in any case, in all these previous times, it's not that hard to go and see what the reference is to. But then you come to this one. And Matthew says, the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. And my question is, where? Where did they say that? And it's a little bit of a trick question because they don't. There is not one verse in the Old Testament that says anything about Nazareth. Not one. In fact, the village of Nazareth wasn't even a village until maybe the very, very, very end of the Old Testament period. There's, there's no awareness of the prophets of a town called Nazareth. Your Bible has references. You can look at them. For every single quote throughout these previous 20-some verses, for every time he says, the prophet says this, there will be a footnote that tells you where it says that. You come to this one, there are no references. And so I, I wonder, <laughs> Matthew, what, what are you doing? It made my sermon prep complicated this week. <laughs> It's, it's easy when I know where the reference is and I can point back to it and I can, ex, and I can help explain it, what it means for us today, but, but I wasn't able to do that this week. There was no reference there. And I'm wondering what's happening. And to get to the bottom of it, we have to remember once again, Matthew's original audience, they were Jewish people familiar with their Old Testaments, which, yes, explicitly claimed the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. But there is another prophetic tradition regarding the Messiah that Matthew is wanting us, he's wanting to call our attentions to it here in this verse. He's not, verse 23 does not represent a direct quote from the Old Testament. Verse 23 is more of a theme, a theme of prophecy that comes from the Old Testament. He'll do this again, by the way, later in chapter 26. It's not the only time in his Bible uh, in his gospel, that, this, that we see this uh, phenomenon. In fact, the next one will be out of the mouth of Jesus himself. So Matthew is following Jesus' own pattern of interpreting whole themes of, of the scriptures uh, in a way that, that in, this, in, the, this, in a way of stating as this is fulfilling the prophets, okay? So this is not just a direct quote, this is an entire theme. And the best way to understand it is to first understand what an absolute nowhere place Nazareth really was. Now, a couple advents ago, we were in Micah, and there was a Sunday 
uh, where we were on, in chapter 5, uh, looking, in fact, ironically, at the very verse that Matthew is quoting in his gospel here earlier in chapter 2. And that Sunday, I was poking a little fun at Bethlehem, right? Because Bethlehem also was a nowhere kind of town. You might recall me making reference to a little, um, a little village in, in the central part of Ohio where I'm originally from. You remember me mentioning the little town called Whistler. Does anybody remember, remember that? Uh, you know, back in October, when my family was up there, uh, the Wartmans were also able to make, they'd never seen where I'm from, so their whole family came, and we got to show them around, and uh, there was a day where Jeff and Chelsea, uh, Beck and I took Jeff and Chelsea in our van and just explored the little countryside there around my, my hometown, and, and they didn't realize it, but we drove right through Whistler. And they didn't realize it because they managed to blink and they missed the whole thing. Back when I was in high school, my friends and I used to laugh because the sign said, you know, welcome to Whistler, population 111. And we joked that the 111 was Roman numerals for three. It is, it is the most insignificant place I think that exists on the planet. It does have a Wikipedia entry though. If you look it up, I promise you on Wikipedia, you look it up and it has... It has this to say about Whistler. It is an unincorporated community in Pickaway County in the U.S. state of Ohio. And here's the, the statement from its history. A post office called Whistler was established in 1883 and remained in operation until 1933. Besides the post office, Whistler had a country store. The end. <laughs> that is it. That's the, that's the sum total of the history that, will be, that, that Whistler would be remembered for, that it once had a post office and a country store. But guess what? It doesn't have either anymore. There's nothing there. And that was Bethlehem. Bethlehem was Whistler. But at least Bethlehem had the reputation of being the place where King David was from. Bethlehem at least had the, 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 the honor of being the place where the prophet said the Messiah would, would come from. But Nazareth didn't have any of that. It was as obscure of a village in the Galilean hills as could be with precisely zero Old Testament reference or claim to have anything to do with the Messiah at all. To be called a Nazarene, therefore, for the people in that day was sort of like a, an insult. But when you plug it into a messianic context, if someone who's claiming to be a Messiah and they come from there, well, to call that person a Nazarene would have been an outright insult. It would have been a, a, a ridicule. It would have been dismissal. It would have been, I, I, I reject you because of where you're from. And we hear this in Nathaniel's reaction in John chapter 1. I told you earlier we were going to come back to John. And many of you remember what, what Nathaniel had to say. You know, Peter goes and tells um, Philip about Jesus. And then Jesus, I'm sorry, Philip goes and tells Nathaniel about Jesus. He says, hey, we found the person Moses and the prophets were talking about. His name is Jesus. He's the son of Joseph. And he's from Nazareth. And you can almost hear Nathaniel you know, spit out his coffee when he hears where this so-called Messiah is from. There's no way that he's from there. Or there's no way that anyone could come from there and be who you say he is. Nothing good comes from that town. And Nathaniel would know. He was from Cana, which is like two miles away. He's the neighbor. He knows there's nothing in there. He knows if you blink, you miss it. He knows that the Wikipedia page is blank. There's, the Old Testament says nothing about it. 
And so he, he scoffs. Nothing good comes from Nazareth, especially anything that the prophets would have had to say. And the crowds in John 7 affirm that. Search the scriptures, they say. See for yourself what I was preparing to do this week in preparation. I wanted to search the scriptures. And, and Matthew says the prophets said this. So where? Well, they, the crowds are right. Search the scriptures for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. It's never happened before. There's no way it's happening now, they, they were thinking to themselves. In fact, most of the people down south in Judea, you know, the people that look down their nose to those, those northern hillbillies, they probably never had even heard of Nazareth, a bunch of them. That's how insignificant the place was. So what is Matthew doing? What are you talking about, Matthew? Well, look, Matthew doesn't say, this fulfilled what the prophet said, he will come from Nazareth. That's not what he says. Matthew says, this fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Which is another way of saying, in summary of an entire prophetic tradition, he will be called something derogatory. He will be called something derogatory. He he, when, he is, when he appears, he will be rejected. He will be dismissed. And the prophets foresaw this, didn't they? They, saw, they foresaw a Messiah like this. You know, you can hear it later on in, in Matthew's gospel. In fact, we'll be there on Palm Sunday in chapter 26. I've referred to that several times now. In chapter 26 on Palm Sunday, this, the story where you know, Jesus has been arrested and his disciples have scattered like cockroaches when he flicked the light switch on. And there's Peter kind of trying to watch what's going on, but he doesn't want to be recognized. And when someone recognizes him, they, rec- they recognize him as being who? Well, one who was with Jesus of Nazareth. There's just contempt just dripping off these words. Oh, he's with that Jesus. And he's like, no, no, I'm not. All right. that's, that's what Matthew is referring to, this prophetic tradition that he would be received like that. He would not be recognized for who he is. He would not be held in high esteem. He would not be taken seriously. He would not be even welcomed at all by his people. He died a lonely death on a cross. And the prophets foresaw this. He looked no further than Zechariah chapters 9 through 14. He's the, the humble figure throughout these chapters whose authority would be rejected, who would be pierced by the people of Jerusalem. He would be struck down by the very sword of God, Zechariah said. He's the righteous sufferer from the Psalms, particularly uh, Psalms 22 and Psalm 69 and other Psalms along those lines that talk about the righteous sufferer. He is the suffering servant. Of Isaiah 52 and 53, the one who would be despised and rejected, held of no account, coming up out of nowhere like a shoot out of dry ground, which the, the crowds in John 7 also said that. They, they knew that much about the Messiah, that he would, they said, quote, that he would come from nowhere, essentially. That no one would know where he came from. He would just appear. And here he has, and he's still rejected. He's still dismissed. 
he's still the object of scorn. If verses 1 through 22 of Matthew chapter 2 are his geographic apologetic of how Jesus fulfills the messianic expectation of David's son coming from Bethlehem, well then verse 23 is Matthew's argument that this very same Jesus, well, he fulfills that other prophetic tradition of a Messiah who would appear from nowhere and be met with rejection. He would be the Messiah who came from the wrong place, who did not conform to conventional expectation. Indeed, a Messiah from Nazareth would be nothing short of a national embarrassment to his people. But you know what? Matthew's not embarrassed at all about him. Matthew wants us to see all of this clearly. He's not hiding it. He's not afraid of it. In fact, he highlights it. He includes it for a purpose. He has a motive. He has an agenda. He's making a point. He wants us to zoom in. He wants us to zoom in, and and not just into the text, but beyond the text, what the text is pointing to. He wants to see right into the very heart of who this Messiah is. It's more than just a matter of where he came from. It's more than just a matter of how he fulfills prophecy, which he does. He wants us to come to know him. He wants us to understand his heart, his mind, his very person, He is the mighty, conquering king and deliverer. He is the obedient son. He is the better David, the better Moses, the better Israel. But in his heart, in his very person, who he has manifested himself to be. Remember, this is Epiphany. Epiphany is all about his appearing. He has appeared to make himself known. And not just to the original readers of Matthew, but as symbolized by the wise men from the east. He wants, him, he wants to be known in Israel, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's come to make himself known to all the world. And in his heart, who he has revealed himself to be is he is humble. He is lowly. He is rejectable. He is self-giving. And the world looks at him. And not just the unbelieving world, even religious people. They look at him and they scoff. But his very person is nothing short of an indictment against our own value systems. Of how shallow and superficial and greedy and self-focused how power-hungry, how vain we actually are. That we would look at this and we would be dismissive of it. That we would look at him and, and say something derogatory. That we would use his name in vain. As if it doesn't matter. It's just another name. It's not the name above all names. It's the name below all names. But he's come to flip all of that upside down. He's come to lead a revolution In the heart, he is Christ, the very power, the very wisdom of God, who was ordinary and yet extraordinary, who was promised to come and yet takes us by surprise, who, yes, who emerged from Nazareth but originates from heaven, who came 
from nothing, but who in himself is everything. He didn't come from where anyone expected him to come. He didn't come how anyone expected him to come. He's not the Messiah that anyone wanted, but he is the Messiah that we need. We need nothing more than him, and we need nothing less than him. Season, the season of Lent is right around the corner, just a few days away. And during that time, we're going to follow Jesus on his journey, which will end at the most logical place possible when you consider where it began from. You see, there's a direct line that you can draw from the carpenter shop in Nazareth in Galilee to the Roman cross in Jerusalem of Judea. There's a direct line. And there at the end of his journey, the king will be lifted up, but not onto a throne. In Jerusalem where his glory will be manifest, most clearly, the clearest picture possible of his glory, but not in an act of blinding light, but in the ultimate act of self-giving love. And from there, the one who, in our stories here at the start of his life, the one who was the receiver of treasures, well, he will become the giver of even greater treasures. And he will do it at the expense of his life. As Paul says in Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians, in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, God supplies the glorious riches for every one of life's needs. In him is found every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Forgiveness from sin, cleansing from unrighteousness, reconciliation with God, the opportunity to have a second chance at life, to know and to be known by God who is a heavenly father, to become by grace his son or his daughter, real love, real life that lasts forever. And all of this, all of these things, all these riches, all of these treasures are offered by and through the one that they called a Nazarene. Who for us and our, for our salvation gave up his divine privileges, Paul says, took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being, humbling himself in obedience to God to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. He became nothing that you and I might receive everything. So will you receive him this morning? Will you receive him? That's the invitation for you. I'm going to invite you to do something a little different than what we normally do. Um, as the worship team makes their way up here, I'm going to ask you if you would all stand. And I debated and went back and forth on how to, how to end the service here this morning, but I felt the Lord leading me to do this. It's a little out of our, uh, our custom. I'm going to read to you the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and the entirety of Isaiah chapter 53. And I know that's a lot when it comes to public, the public reading of Scripture. It's sort of a lost art in the church. We're, we don't want to lose it here. We want to re retain it. And so I hope that you, can, if, 
if you're, if you're able to stand, please stand. And if not, that's fine. But please, if you would permit me to read this, and I want you to just hear how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Isaiah is saying about him here. And I wonder if you would even close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to do anything cheesy or hokey. I just want you to close your eyes so you can focus on the words. They're not going to be on the screen. I want you to hear them. Because I, I believe strongly that the ear has the most direct path to the heart. So hear these words through the prophet Isaiah. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he hardly seemed human. And from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray and have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord has laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and harshly treated, yet he never said a word. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the good Lord's plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and bore the sins of many and interceded for us all. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that though you were God, you didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped or clung to. You didn't show up on the scene of the first century in the Middle East and in all of your glory. No, you took on the humble appearance of a man, of a servant, of a slave. You became the least of all even though you are the greatest of all. 
and it wasn't a charade. It wasn't pretend. It wasn't for show. It was an expression of your precious heart, of who you really are, humble, lowly, rejectable, self-giving. This is, this is epiphany. This is your manifestation of yourself. And there's nothing fake. It is the realest thing that we can see about you. That in your heart of hearts, you are a God of self-giving love. Lord, may we have hearts and eyes and faith to see that, to see you for who you really are and to believe in you, to trust in you, to be willing to relinquish the control that, of our lives that we cling to with such white-knuckled grasps and to let go and to give ourselves over to you because you are trustable. I can place my hands, my life in the hands of a God like you. So Lord, may we receive all the riches that are offered in you. And may our lives be living epiphanies through which others can see you at work in us and through us. Until all the world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And we anticipate the day when we will behold you with unveiled faces and worship you and praise you and have communion with you and one another forever and ever. But that starts in, in moments like the present where we choose to say no to ourselves and no to the world and yes to you. Lord, may this space be filled with a resounding chorus of yeses from the deepest places of our hearts. We may not fully understand it all. We may have questions. We have doubts and we have fears. But when we behold you face to face, we see you for who you are, Lord, may our hearts cry out yes and yes. May it be so today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.